Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock. I hope you had a chance to listen to last week's episode on the Sydney Tar Ponds. Although it took some time, the remediation of that site was a big win, and now it's a beautiful park. Today's episode is not quite as much of a happy ending sort of story. Like I mentioned last week, this is going to be a two-part topic. This event put international eyes on the oil and gas industry, claimed many human lives, and was one of the worst environmental disasters to befoul the coastal United States and the oceans in general. I'm, of course, talking about the Deepwater Horizon oil disaster. Let's go ahead and get into this week's episode. As always, thank you for listening. More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased fivefold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat of toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because there are these dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. On the night of April 20th, 2010, Perched above the dark and still waters of the Gulf of Mexico, the Deepwater Horizon offshore drilling rig lay silent. At the time, the rig was being leased by a British big oil company in order to drill an exploratory well. It was actually in the final stages of the well's conclusion at the time of the accident. The vessel's manifest listed 126 souls on board. Among these folks were contracted workers, engineers, and even some visiting supervisory staff. At the time, many of the crew were in their quarters, either getting ready for bed, showering, or even just unwinding and watching television. Others were already fast asleep, exhausted after the day's grueling 12-hour shift. Around 10 p.m. that night, crewmen reported that the lights on board Deepwater Horizon began to flicker. Shortly after, the crewmen were joined by a massive thud that reverberated through the entire rig. A second sound soon followed described as a loud vibration. One crewman would later recall that the sound was, quote, like a groaning beast. The moments that followed would have been nothing short of hellish. A great roar erupted from the deep as a mixture of gas, oil, and drilling mud tore upwards through the downhole pipe. And this is the pipe that connects the seafloor to the pumping equipment on the rig. First came the sound, and then came the fire. The mixture shot upwards as high as one could see. And let it be known, this type of event is called a blowout. The mixture which contained gas was somehow ignited. What followed was a massive explosion. Flames erupted on the deck, 
and the fire engulfed the entire platform. From the control tower on shore, you could see a column of flames towering high into the night sky. Meanwhile, on the rig, the crewmen clocked the gravity of this situation, as well as a sense of urgency. They knew that time was in short supply, and so the alarms blared and the notice was given to abandon ship. Crewmen got their bearings and began mobilizing to abandon the fiery rig, and this entailed climbing into covered lifeboats and winching their way down to the water. Some of the rig's lifeboats had actually blown away during all of this. It was said panicked crewmen had no choice but to jump overboard into the dark waters below. And this may not sound bad, but this jump would actually see them fall 80 feet into the sea. And some were actually injured due to this immense height. Crewmen who were already in lifeboats skimmed the waters and grabbed their colleagues, drawing them in to safety. Luckily, by this time, there was actually a supply ship, the Damon Bankston, that was already en route to the rig. When the Damon Bankston received the distress signal coming from the Deepwater Horizon, the ship's captain raced to the scene. And once they got there, they immediately began rescue efforts. As this was all unfolding, the Coast Guard went ahead and sent helicopters and rescue boats, and they would end up joining in the combing of the waters for survivors once they reached that rig. In total, 17 crewmen were critically injured and were evacuated to hospitals along the coast. 94 crewmen who were deemed stable actually boarded the Damon Bankston ship and were brought to hotels where they could recover from the night's events. Unfortunately, there are still 11 crewmen that have never been accounted for. The blaze, meanwhile, continued all through the night. As the sun came up and dawn encroached upon the sky, a better extent of the damage came into view. It was at this time that people on site reported the stout steel of the rig sagging like a clothesline. It was determined that the fire was inextinguishable, and it raged and fully engulfed the platform. When all was said and done, deep water horizon burned for more than a day. It was two days after the initial explosion at around 10 a.m. on April 22nd that there was another loud groaning. Faced with a losing battle, onlookers were powerless as the wreckage of the rig crumbled into the ocean, taking with it 11 workers who were presumed to have been killed in the initial explosion. On the morning of Friday, April 22nd, U.S. Coast Guard Rear Admiral Mary Landry was quoted in the New York Times as saying that the official response 
was that the oil well being drilled by the deep water horizon was sealed, and that there was no oil leaking out into the ocean. Unfortunately, this was not anywhere close to the truth. The following day, Landry stated that the well actually had not been sealed. It was in fact gushing oil at a rate of about 1,000 barrels per day, and this is according to BP's revised statement. At this point, the race to seal the well was on, and this ordeal, which would last all of 87 days, would result in an unprecedented human environmental, and economic disaster affecting the marine ecosystem in the Gulf of Mexico and communities along the coast from Texas to Florida. So let's step back for a second and kind of take a look at what this deep water horizon rig really was and how it functioned. So it's important here to set up the various ways in which the oil industry enabled and fostered a culture of overexertion, always digging deeper, producing more, overusing their equipment, cutting corners, straining their workers, avoiding costly upgrades, and so on. This culture of overexertion, or near-constant productivity, cannot be discounted. The oil industry, like many exploitative, resource-extracting-based industries, has a bad case of flying too close to the sun when it comes to pushing the limits of excavation in geologically precarious places. So as I previously touched on, Deep Water Horizon was the name of the offshore drilling rig in today's episode. These types of rigs are used, or leased, by big oil companies to drill wells in really challenging environments. The fact that these rigs are built by one company and then leased by another company is actually pretty significant, especially to this story as the steep rental cost actually affected BP's decision-making in pursuing its drilling in the Maconda Prospect, but we'll talk about that more later. So sometimes these rigs are set up for production wells, but for the most part they're used to drill an exploratory well and move on. This particular rig was commissioned by a company called R&B Falcon, which would later on become an asset owned by a company called TransOcean. Now TransOcean will be one of the key players in this series. At the time of the accident, the rig was being leased to British Petroleum, or commonly known as BP. From this point on, I'll actually refer to them as BP. So BP's intended use of the well that Deepwater Horizon was operating on, the Macondo Exploratory Well, was supposed to extend for a 90-day period, and that's from the dig to the extraction. And the cost of renting out or leasing this rig 
was about $500,000 a day. And keep that in mind because this will be highly significant information later on. At the time of the accident, BP was drilling in an area called the Macondo Prospect. And this area is off the coast of Louisiana in the Gulf of Mexico. This area is also called Mississippi Canyon Block 252. And the mineral rights to drill this site were actually purchased by BP in 2008. Now another name that you may hear this well called is the Macondo Exploratory Well. And this might be a little flowery to add, but the name Macondo refers to the name of a fictional cursed village in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's incredible work of magical realism titled 100 Years of Solitude. Is this foreshadowing, I presume? It actually comes up in the research a little bit for this episode, so I thought I'd throw that in there. Aside from Transocean and BP, there were other players involved as well. Halliburton was in charge of the operating procedures. Cameron was the company that built the blowout preventer, which is a vital piece of equipment that is part of this rig. And as we move through this story, you will see how this piece of equipment will actually play a more important role as we go. In fact, we can recall that a blowout is the type of oil industry accident that triggered this exact explosion. Now the last key player was Schlumberger, which was contracted to oversee operations at the well. So by this time, we can already see that the whole operation involved lots of big corporate entities at the top, and even more little guys, aka the crewmen, on the ground floor. So I mentioned we would take a more in-depth look at the rig itself. So let's get into that. In TransOcean's own fleet specification guide, Deepwater Horizon is described as such. A floating oil rig, a semi-submersible drilling unit capable of operating in harsh environments and water depths up to 8,000 feet. The rig was built in 2001 by Hyundai Heavy Industries in South Korea, and it was outfitted with a helideck, which is a helicopter landing pad. To help visualize its size, which was about 396 feet by 256 feet, this is about a similar size and area as two football fields laid side by side. The rig was also dynamically positioned, meaning that it operated using a dynamic position system. And what does this mean? Well, according to Guard, a global marine insurance firm, the function of a dynamic positioning system, quote, is to maintain a drilling unit in a specified position 
by automatically controlling the power and propulsion systems. DP is designed to perform this task within a certain range limit using a minimum amount of fuel and minimum wear and tear of the propulsion equipment. DP computers located in the control room calculate the difference between the wanted and the present positions of the unit using position references such as DGPS, which is differentially corrected GPS satellite positioning, and hydroacoustic signals. From this information, the system is able to calculate the force that the propellers should produce in order to maintain that location. So, in other words, computers control the rig and maintain its location in place and optimize fuel expenditure all at once. The last spec about this rig is the fact that it had a maximum drilling depth of 30,000 feet. And this little bit of information will be significant later on in the episode. In 2002, Deepwater Horizon was updated and outfitted with a new drill called an E-Drill. According to an article published in Offshore Magazine in November of 2002, the E-Drill technology was implemented with the goal of, quote, reducing rig downtime by monitoring drilling equipment in real time. The E-Drill production company described it as, quote, the industry's first system for remotely monitoring and diagnosing equipment on rigs anywhere in the world. E-Drill supplies data via an internet link to a manned service center based in Houston, Texas. This center offers remote diagnostics in the form of trained technicians and engineers who monitor this rig activity 24 hours a day. The staff communicates monitoring, maintenance, and troubleshooting information to the working rig, which allows the drilling companies to maximize equipment operation and minimize downtime. So I get it, this might sound pretty basic, but at the time, it was cutting-edge technology. And it's also worth noting here that the undertone, quote, reducing rig downtime, implies the drive towards optimization and constant production. So far, we have a breakdown of what kind of rig Deepwater Horizon was. It was a rig designed to push limits, the limits of the natural world, in fact, and it was also a rig that was being tweaked in order to be constantly performing. In 2009, Deepwater Horizon was used to discover oil in the giant Tiber oil field. At the time, the well was 35,000 feet deep, and it extended 5,000 feet deeper than the specifications it was actually designed for. And so this is an example of how companies like BP are willing to take big gambles for ultimate payoffs. Also, during its operational lifetime, D 
Deepwater Horizon was operational for 93% of its working life. And that's 2,896 days out of 3,131 days of service. And interestingly enough, the remaining days are only days that the rig was being moved between sites. And this is also another example of the culture of overexertion. Although we've talked about the rig and the automation that drives it, it was in no way operable without the presence and expertise of skilled crewmen. Rigs about this same size typically can accommodate up to 130 personnel. Like I said in the beginning, Deepwater Horizon had 126 people on board, and at the time, the crewmen would be working on a 21-day-on and 21-day-off schedule. And this implies an emotional and physical toll as workers are far from their families for an extended period of time working in a very physically demanding environment. It's often said that many of the 11 men who were never accounted for stayed at their workstations trying to prevent the loadout. And this shows fierce dedication to the task at hand. I think now is a really good time to jump into the accident. After the construction of Deepwater Horizon, the rig was leased on contract to BP. In 2009, the contract had just been renewed for a period which was supposed to cover 2010 to 2013. The cost of this contract was $544 million, or about $496,800 a day for the bare rig. On top of that, the cost for the crew gear, and support vessels was estimated to be another $500,000 a day. At the time of the accident, BP was in the final stages of drilling this well, and it was reported that BP was intent on finishing the job quickly so that it could move to another well. I'm sure the old adage applied, time is money. On April 6th, 2009, so almost a year to the day of the accident, BP was exempted by the U.S. Department of Interior from doing a detailed environmental impact assessment survey on its proposed drilling operations in the Macondo Prospect after concluding that a massive oil spill resulting from these operations was unlikely. About a year later, BP insured the rig for $560 million. And of course, any business or corporation is going to insure their hundreds and hundreds of million dollars worth of equipment. So even if it blew up, which it did, BP wouldn't really lose any money unless its shareholders pulled out of the operation altogether. BP finally started exploratory drilling in this Macondo prospect 
in February of 2010. The exploratory Macondo well was set to be drilled and excavated for a period of 90 days. At the time, the Macondo well extended to a depth of over 5,000 feet. And of course, as I mentioned, every day that BP rented out the rig would set them back another $500,000. According to National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling Report, at 7 a.m. on the morning of April 20th, it was reported in a daily conference call that the final cement job at the bottom of the Macondo well had gone fine. So this is significant because BP's plan was that if the cement job went well, as I just described, they would forego the cement examination. So in other words, if the cement job seemed to go okay, they wouldn't test it. They would just let it be. So in turn, the workers of the Schlumberger company, who were scheduled to examine the well's new bottom cement seal, were sent away on an 11 a.m. helicopter, which, surprise, saved BP $128,000 and lots of extra time that would have been lost during the examination. Now the rest of the day, consider... Now, the rest of the day consisted of a series of pressure tests undertaken on the well. During the positive pressure test, the crew would increase pressure inside the steel casing and seal assembly to make sure they remained intact. This test was a success. Now, after that, the negative pressure test reduced pressure inside of the well. And this test was done by the rig crew, including a tool pusher named Wayman Wheeler. Now, a goal of this negative pressure test was to mimic the condition that the well would be left in once the rig had picked up and moved on. It turns out that this test did not go well, and it provided mixed results. According to the report, Quote, after bleeding pressure from the well, the crew would close it off to check whether the pressure within the drill pipe would remain steady, but the pressure repeatedly built back up. In this same report, Wayman Wheeler, who was critical of the results, stated he was convinced something wasn't right in the readings. Unfortunately, his shift was up around that same time, and in the end, the readings were supported, and the move towards concluding the well went ahead as planned. It's probably worth mentioning at this junction that a group of four executives were on the rig that day of the accident. They were doing a management visibility tour. So two of them were from Transocean, and the other two were from BP. They were celebrating seven years of operation without any lost time accidents. And so I think it's probably fair to infer that maybe this pressure 
of having these executives kind of skewed the crewmen towards closing the well in a rushed manner. I know we're here for the facts, but if we kind of paint a picture, I'm sure that this folds into the human element of the story. The operations systems on the rig were advanced for the time. Some were remotely operated, and some systems were completely automated. But there were a few that were still manual, like the emergency shutoff systems. As I mentioned earlier, the rig was designed to operate in very harsh environments. You might be asking, what kind of dangers can befall an offshore drilling rig? Well, even the layman can loosely conceptualize the logistical challenges of digging a well 5,000 feet underwater. But how exactly would risks manifest themselves in a dig such as Deepwater Horizon? Let's go ahead and take a look at this together in order to better understand what happened that night. When the well is pumping the seafloor for oil, there is always a risk that a kick could happen. Now, according to the academic paper published in 2019 by Manaconda et al., quote, an unscheduled entry of the reservoir fluids into the well bore while drilling is called a kick. A kick happens when the pressure inside the well bore is lower than the formation pore pressure. An unmitigated kick might lead to a blowout. Oil and gas well blowouts are disastrous for everyone involved. At this point, we do know that it was a blowout that ultimately caused this accident, which by reading this, you can assume the blowout was caused by a kick, but we'll explore it a little bit further. As reported in an article in The Economist published in 2010, quote, drilling for oil is a balancing act. If the pressure of the working fluids in the well or the strength of concrete holding the pipeline in place cannot balance the immense pressure of the oil down below, then things get very bad, very quickly. So I mentioned earlier that there was a blowout preventer system, and this is the last line of defense against a blowout. When the gas, oil, and mud went up the pipe on the night of the accident, this was an example of a kick. Unfortunately, the crew at the time were not all aware that this kick was out of the ordinary. So this blowout preventer, the last line of defense, did not work according to plan. This preventer would actually be the most identifiable failure as its design lies in being the last line of defense of the rig against a blowout. However, as we are starting to piece together based on the setup and the culture of this industry, nothing went as it should have that night. You know, theory is one thing, but practice is a whole nother animal. So a blowout is bound to happen at some point. It's the dreaded foe or looming threat 
of oil drilling. But the Deepwater Horizon should have weathered the blowout. Let's take a look at what conspired against it. So to recap, we know that oil drilling is a risky endeavor for many reasons. But according to an expose in the New York Times titled Deepwater Horizon's Final Hours, published in December of 2010, there are also man-made factors that contributed to making the accident on the rig so catastrophic. It's this article that will be a primary source for this part of this episode, as it details how and why Deepwater Horizon failed to weather this blowout, which by all accounts it should have been able to manage. One salient point is that on April 20th, 2010, all of Deepwater Horizon's defenses failed. Some were deployed but did not work. Some were activated too late, probably destroyed by the explosion or fire, and some were never deployed at all. It was reported that at critical moments, members of the crew hesitated and did not take the decisive steps needed. And this would be consistent with a form of paralysis in the presence of danger. The article points to two reasons for this. One, there was a failure to train for the worst. And two, the crew were frozen when faced with the sheer complexity of Horizon's defenses. For example, one emergency response was controlled by 30 buttons. And the safety manual provided by TransOcean also lacked clarity on what rapid action was to take place, often warning against overreaction. All of this created a climate of contradiction and subsequent paralysis in the face of danger. Now let's not forget that the industry, perhaps bolstered by exemptions like the one granted to BP in 2009, kind of forged this idea that no real danger could result from the drilling operations. Furthermore, the Macondo well, dubbed the Well from Hell by crewmen, was stated to be finished off on the day of the accident. It was later found out that the Macondo well was reported to have been the Macondo well was later reported to have been behind schedule from the get-go. Because of this, the Horizon actually drilled the well very rapidly compared to the normal length of time it would take to drill such a well. And this is because workers were paid bonuses for meeting schedules which incentivized this speed. And this was also true for BP executives as well, like the supervisory staff that were actually visiting the rig on the day of the accident. All of this did end up causing trouble for the well. An accident on March 8th of 2010, which was about a month before this accident that we're talking about, that ultimately crippled the rig, left 
the crew with the reminder that they were, after all, tangling with powerful geological forces. The Gulf of Mexico has an unstable and porous seafloor, so this kind of caused the heavy drilling fluid called mud to seep out of formation cracks around the well. Generally, this heavy mud is used to stabilize the oil and gas as it surges up, so less mud translates as more instability. On this March 8th accident, millions of dollars in tools were left jammed in the well when a nasty kick left the workers scrambling to control it. Turns out, operations were halted for nine days, which doesn't seem like a lot, but let's remember that BP was paying $500,000 a day just for renting the rig. So that really puts things into perspective. Of course, after all of this, BP has since denied that it put pressure onto the crew to finish the well. But reports from the crew state that BP was constantly changing its approach to digging the well, often in ways that saved time, but increased risk. As explained at the beginning of this episode, gases were released when the blowout happened. Of course, this is what a blowout is. The general master alarm is the alarm that activates a general evacuation of the rig was originally designed to be automatically triggered if a high level of gas was detected. However, TransOcean had tweaked the system, so it had to be activated manually. Now, the emergency shutdown system could have been turned on as well. Now, this system would have theoretically tempered the flow of gases by shutting off ventilation fans. And it could have also turned off electrical equipment, thereby limiting sources of potential ignition to the gases being expelled. But unfortunately, this was never activated. Both of these systems, which should have been automated, were ultimately reduced to relying on human activation and judgment. In this expose, the New York Times states, quote, TransOcean had been warned that the human element, the need for crew members to act quickly and correctly under stress, made the shutdown system vulnerable. In 2002, a safety consultant specifically urged TransOcean to consider changing the system so that human input is not critical for its success. To this, TransOcean rebuttaled by saying that having an automatic system is less safe. Now, of course, these systems being automated probably would have been more safe than being manually activated, especially because crewmen such as 23-year-old Andrea Fletes, who was a bridge officer at the time, reported that she had never even been taught how to use these emergency shutdown systems. Let's go ahead and take another look at the blowout preventers, or BOPs. 
These are touted as the ultimate failsafe in the event of a blowout. So these would be the last line of defense after the last two systems that we just discussed. TransOcean has stated that the Horizon's blowout preventer was incapable of preventing the blowout that took out its own rig. After the accident, the company even went as far as suing Cameron, the company that built the blowout preventer. Fortunately for Cameron, there is evidence that poor maintenance resulted in the blowout preventer not functioning optimally. So things that were overlooked or ignored were dead batteries, bad solenoid valves, and leaking hydraulic lines. According to that same New York Times expose I just spoke about, TransOcean had never performed a 90-day maintenance inspection that the manufacturer said should be done every three to five years. And this, of course, was not done because it was expensive. But it should be noted that industry standards and federal regulations validate this claim that these that these 90-day inspections should take place every three to five years. BP and TransOcean safety consultant had pointed out that the Horizons blowout preventer, a decade old, was past due for this inspection. Unfortunately, TransOcean decided its regular maintenance program was adequate for the time being. About a year after the accident, a forensic exam was conducted on the blowout preventer. The resulting report stated, quote, A set of massive blades known as blade shear rams designed to slice through the pipe carrying oil had malfunctioned because the pipe had bent under the pressure of the rising gas and oil. So according to this, while preventative maintenance really was not a thing, and there were a lot of corners cut with the blow-off preventer, it does sort of sound like it was more of a circumstantial failure as the pipe had bent from pressure, which didn't allow those shears to cut it, rather than a total malfunction of the blades themselves or any other function of it. Now, in the engine room, the crew who hadn't been alerted to what was going on yet could have easily pushed a button that gave them the power to access the emergency shutdown system themselves. But remember the general master alarm that would have alerted them? had not been sounded at this point. So this was not done and the culture of uncertainty and the stigma of overreaction coupled with the lack of communication with the drilling room and the bridge made it so that there was a risk of overreacting. If they killed the engines and the horizon was set adrift, its position over the well would change and it would possibly damage the drilling equipment which would force costly delays. So the rig was on fire 
a fire being fed by gases and oil which were pumping from the depths of the ocean. The rig was still tethered to the well from hell by way of a blowout preventer which was placed on the sea floor. As we know, that did not work properly. The riser, or the tube that connects the rig to the blowout preventer, is kind of like a cursed umbilical cord. So the one way, or the last way, in which the horizon could have perhaps been saved is by severing it from the blowout preventer. This action would have the blowout preventer shear the pipe, thereby freeing the rig and also simultaneously sealing the well. Also in this process, the emergency disconnect system would have activated, like a pilot hitting the eject button. But as we know, that failed to work. It was at this point that the crew established that they needed to abandon the ship. The crew on the horizon were some of the most competent workers in the industry. The manuals and training provided by Transocean fostered a climate of shame around overreacting. Some workers were simply not trained to deal with extreme accidents, which should be par for the course when you are harnessing unchecked power stemming from such depths in extreme conditions. There was also a sense of great contradiction in Transocean's operational procedures. They simultaneously underlined the importance of quick action, but also related the sense that any overreaction could be or would be catastrophic as well, and overreacting would have great monetary cost and potentially cause other safety issues as well. David Barstow, the author of the New York Times Exposé, reiterated this in an interview with the television show Democracy Now! on December 30, 2010, stating from that the moment of the first kick to the first explosion, nine minutes of what he describes as paralysis gripped the experienced crewmen of the rig as a result of this sense of contradiction freezing key people at key moments. So the crew was in a state of paralysis as gas detectors flashed and warning signs blared on the bridge and the general alarm just wasn't sounded because of that. And this means that for many of the 126 on board, the first sign of a crisis came only when the first explosion hit. Now, Transocean, the owner of this rig, has a potent safety culture in theory, i.e. chunky safety manuals, expert staff, etc., whereas BP possessed an abysmal safety record at the time of this accident. What's troubling is the lack of applied preparedness when it comes to extreme accidents. The Horizon was touted as the Titanic of floating rigs. It was state-of-the-art, outfitted like a small floating city, and it should have weathered the blowout, but instead it crumbled into the ocean. 
As I mentioned earlier, first official reports stemming from the Coast Guard stated that the well had been capped and that no oil was flowing into the ocean. As I've already said, this was not true. Once the rig capsized, the riser, which is the pipe that pumps up the oil, ruptured and oil began flowing freely into the Gulf of Mexico. Originally, the Coast Guard had stated that 1,000 barrels worth of oil was being released a day into the oceans, but a revised number estimated that the number was more like 60,000 barrels a day. So it was at this point that oil was now openly spewing into the Gulf of Mexico and heading inevitably towards the coastline. BP was mandated by the U.S. government to clean up the spill. How would they do it, and how could they tackle such a gargantuan task? Eleven workers paid the ultimate price on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig. They tried to prevent the blowout, but were unable to fight against such substantial force. Who would be accountable for this? and what other prices would be paid before this ordeal would be over. These questions and more will all be answered next week in part two of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill series. So make a note, and I'll see you next week.